Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast. And welcome back. This is the last episode of this batch. Stephen, how are you? Yeah, I know. It's been good fun. We've, we've spoken to some incredible people, had some fascinating conversations. So yeah, I'm, I'm really well and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today as well. Yeah, you just mentioned fascinating. This will be very fascinating as well. We're having Richard calling us from London, actually. So for once, we're on the same time zone, which makes our lives much easier. Can you introduce us, Richard? And also, what are we going to talk about today, Stephen? I'm delighted to welcome a good friend of mine and, and of Notions, which is Richard Gould, who is a partner at EY. He heads up their tech law practice for EY globally, and he leads their fast growth tech practice in the UK as well. Over the last few years, we've done quite a lot of work with Rich and his team on the topic of conversation today, which is really all around the, the art of exiteering, you know, playing a really long game in terms of value creation for big stakes. So, Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Stephen. It's delightful to be invited. Always a pleasure. Shall I set the scene a little bit, Paul? Please do. It goes without saying that we, we invest in some extraordinary businesses and they have a few things in common, you know, great founders solving a, a really existential problem in a big market with the desire, ambition to build a global category leading company that really endures. They have one other thing in common, which is ultimately they all want to realize some kind of value for all the work that they put in. And we take a really long view of this. You know, we're investing out of 10 year term funds in venture. So from the day that we start investing in company, we want to talk to them about how do you build a great business with and to maximize value. Now, some people will say, well, you just build a great business and the outcome will take care of itself. And that is true to an extent, but we do also believe that taking a long-term view on preparation, readiness, and the strategic aspects of achieving and maximizing a value, whether that's a, an M&A outcome or a, an IPO, doing that early can have a really significant impact, not just on the scale of the outcome, but on the predictability of it and the, and the smoothness of it. And so that's what we're going to be talking to Rich about today. And I think it was Rich who came up with the phrase, the art of exiteering, when we first started talking about this about three years ago. I think that's right, isn't it, Rich? I think so. Although I'd like to think it was more of a collaboration on uh, all fronts, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, so we collaborated on a big report where we interviewed about 20 founders from across Europe to really distill lessons that they'd learned in terms of building their businesses and, and achieving some big outcomes. And Rich was extraordinarily helpful in, in helping us to, to pull that together and, and releasing that report. Yeah, it was probably about three years ago from now. And we're still you know, going back into that, that report on a regular basis. Well, Rich, why don't you just start off, maybe just give a little bit more context to the listeners in terms of you and your role, and then we'll get into the, to the conversation about um, how companies can, from day one, maximize long-term value. Thanks, Stephen. So as you mentioned, I'm responsible for all of our services to startups and scale-ups in the UK, a venture capital and M&A lawyer by background, and indeed still practice that as my core capability. So I spent all of my life really working with founders and their investors, helping them think through the long-term value journey for them. You know, part of that is 
boring stuff, yeah, back-end boring things like legal items or tax items, all the way through <laughs> to strategic, you know, corporate finance, internationalization, broader kind of conversations that founders want to have to help them sort of map out that journey. So this is a topic that's really close to my heart. So how do you respond, you know, from the gut, if you like, to, to that statement I made at the beginning? Founders to just focus on building a, a great business and the exit will take care of itself. I do think there is definitely truth in that statement to a degree because the best founders are so focused on building that company, building the culture, mapping out their stakeholders, managing all of that. But actually, even those very, very myopic founders who are just focused on building the company often tend to, maybe without analytically thinking it through, they are often doing many of the things that need to be done to build to that exit that aren't directly attributable to just building that company. So the sort of things there are, you know, those best founders are typically just very naturally building up an amazing group of board members. They tend to be very good at hiring as well. And they tend to often be very prolific networkers, not just within their industry, but adjacent to their industries and will naturally sort of gravitate towards some potential strategic acquirers. So some people do it without thinking, but but I think what we concluded through doing exiteering is that every founder can take some of those attributes that, that, that I've just talked about and be more analytical about it. They can actually kind of build a methodology to help really think about their exit because at the end of the day, there's a lot of variability and I would say that the average founder doesn't step back enough and actually think about what can I do now differently to build the best outcome for myself, my company and the broader stakeholder mix around it. What we, we're seeing as well is that by being very deliberate about, you know, what are the kind of some of the steps that I might need to take long term, being very deliberate about some of the things I mean, is also very, very helpful when they're doing the later rounds, the Series yeah. B or the Series C. So we see it as being highly additive to ongoing activities while keeping a view on the, on the long term. I think that's exactly right, Stephen. I'll just give you one example. I had a, a session this morning with a truly outstanding fintech founder, and we were talking there about the valuation of his company for the purpose of putting a new set of growth shares in place for the company to incentivize additional top-tier talent to come in. And it was so impressive, the fact that he could just, in that context, without you know having prepped for it, he could really name you know the five most likely buyers of the business in three years' time and has already begun to map out his route into those companies, how he needs to build a value story for those you know five potential routes and how that would differ to private equity. And I think that is exceptional, really. And that's the sort of thing that we're talking about here, which is how do you get people to step away from the business and be able to really map out those potential futures and do it thoughtfully with a broader set of advisors, board members and so on and engage all of them in that sort of conversation in a longer term way. Looking at the even bigger picture, Paul and I were just chatting actually before the before we started, you know, about how I really feel we're seeing more and more ambitious, better prepared founders coming to us for investment. It's hugely encouraging. And we're seeing a lot of kind of increasing maturity across the tech ecosystem. You guys do a lot of work looking at the overall macro issues around M&A and, and IPO trends in the UK, Europe and the rest of the world. How do you see that 
playing out for European companies? Well, I guess you can just look at it from some of the empirical data through what's happening in the market. And we have seen a bit of a slowdown in M&A, at least over the last six to 12 months. But we look at future-looking data as well. So we go around, we interview around 2,000 or so board members from strategic acquirers around the world to help us kind of paint a picture of what's going on. And even though there has been a slowdown in the UK for a number of reasons, not solely Brexit-related, more sort of uncertainty-related, you can see over the next five to 10 years, the M&A markets will be very healthy in Europe. And that's not just because you've got the traditional software companies buying software companies. Actually, a couple of years ago, we began to see the healthiest mix we've ever seen. I think it was two years ago now, we saw real parity between European software companies being sold almost equally between three different pools. First of all, software companies Secondly, non-software companies. I mean, these are companies of any sort of industry that are now buying into digital businesses to help them on their digital journey. And then private equity. So the amount of money on these balance sheets looking to buy either into new markets, buy talent, buy you know, digital assets is at an all-time high. Pricing is at an all-time high. And there's a bit of a debate around is that the new normal or are we at the end of the cycle? But nonetheless, in either case, it looks like there will be healthy appetite for European tech assets. And you have to sort of map that against the fact that even if we are getting towards the end of an economic cycle, we've kind of had a whole cycle now where the IPO markets haven't really been healthy. They certainly haven't been functioning in a way that we've seen historically, later stage capital becoming much, much larger and diverse pool. And you can argue that the stock markets around the world are just not as well attuned for some of these faster growing companies. You know, the amount of regulation goes up ever increasingly, therefore the cost of going onto the stock market and then remaining on you know, any of the exchanges globally just goes up and up and up. So often the average tech founder sort of bulks at that a little bit. And particularly for European companies, we don't have as many rounds that allow founders to take life-changing amounts of cash off the table where they want to double down and grow again. Often, you know, comparatively, it feels like a much less risky deal to uh, just sell to a strategic. So that's not to say I'm entirely bearish on IPOs. I, I, there, there will be, and we'll see great global companies IPOing out of Europe. But I just think that, you know, the medium term future, at least, the vast majority of exit opportunities for European tech companies will come through private M&A to international corporates. It's quite interesting when you do start to map out that that future and you say, well, actually, there's kind of some very distinct parts. I'm going to sell to another software company. I'm going to sell to a corporate. I'm going to sell to a private equity. And then you don't have to make those decisions from day one, but they would have quite different implications on the company and their strategy and their outcome. How do companies start to position themselves for success from day one? From day one, there are lots of things that founders can do that signals what comes next. And often that's around the people. So who you bring on is your early investors, who the advisory board is, who the board members are. These are sort of things that raise a flag for the next investor, which in turn raises a flag for the next investor after that. And, and all of these things sort of can get you further up potential buyers lists, really. And, you know, the founders who really are thoughtful about all of the above are often quite mindful of their own blind spots and are then pulling people in to really kind of help fill in those blind spots. And I think that is 
for me, priority one. You can see the outstanding founders by people who are just able, irrespective of the cost or the risk profile of the business at that stage, to just get tier one talent. And for me, I think you know those founders that spend a disproportionate amount of time on the talent and culture, those are often the people in the early days most likely to be driving the biggest outcomes at the end of their journey. I couldn't agree more. And, and without kind of blowing your trumpet too much, I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot internally is comparing European VC to US VC, whereas a US VC will be saying, you shouldn't be just thinking about the talent of people on the board or an advisory committee or, or in your leadership team. You should be looking at the caliber of your services providers as well. Your legal partners, your accounting practice partners, your taxation partners. And this can be incremental, but it does make a big impact. US VCs will be quite directive on this. Do you yeah, see that right. starting to play out here as well? To a degree. I mean, you can see big firms like ourselves spending much more time in the early stage parts of the ecosystem. You can see US world-renowned technology-focused law firms beginning to invest in the ecosystem. And I think that's all part of it. And part of that is driven by the US counterparties in the ecosystem coming over here and beginning to drive that. But also, I think it is by some of the more progressive VCs and founders who will look at their service providers as partners and as team members and as trusted advisors rather than just a cost. And if all you're trying to do in this exercise is minimize cost, then you'll never drive the sort of relationships that will leverage you best value, whether it's from actually giving you some advice or actually being able to leverage the network, because that's the key. And you want trusted advisors to really help you think about the journey in the long run. But you want them to be able to give you confidence because you want to be working with people who've been there and done it. And, and all of that means broader networks as well. So you know, I have been doing this in Europe now for approaching 20 years, and it's gone through a big sea change. But in many ways, compared to a US ecosystem, it, it still feels nascent. And I think this is one of the areas that's beginning to change and will improve. Because again, whether you're an investment banker or or a lawyer or you know, top-tier accountant or tax professional is so much greater just because of the nature of their business model. They end up seeing, you know, the best of them end up seeing a huge slice to the ecosystem. I agree. I think it's something that we've possibly been a little bit complacent about. We're now starting to have those conversations much earlier with new investments as well. Are there any other steps you want to call out that you really think companies should be focusing on to maximise value in the long term? Yeah, I think we've touched on quite a few of them already in terms of you know, hiring people, having the right advisors around them and so on. But then the sort of conversation that I talked about having this morning with the founder, I think if more management teams were to take, whether it's a half-year or annual you know, step out of the business when they look at their own strategic review, not just looking at performance or, you know, the forecast, but actually beginning to think about mapping out their stakeholder matrix within their buyer pool. Now, many companies cannot know where they will sell because there will be so many different routes to success. But one of the themes that we drew out of the exiteering report that we did with you was the very large proportion of the interviews that were carried out many of those founders themselves had a relationship with somebody in the ultimate acquirer of that business. Maybe it had come through a commercial relationship, maybe it just had arisen through astute networking or leveraging an advisor's network. But I do think that it is worth, at least from you know, years two or three onwards, just stepping out, taking the time to think about, are we actually investing enough in the network and the stakeholder matrix 
whether it's in the US, China, or it could be, you know, domestic corporates or, you know, other ultimate buyers, are we actually invested enough in the relationships? Because you regularly see that the, the investment bankers, the corporate financiers are managing a process to keep the momentum up, keep the buyers going. But it's unbelievable how often the link was there originally. And then that link between the target and somebody within the acquirer was, you know, really yeah, key and relatively long-standing facet of the deal. You're bang on. And I think back on those conversations, that I think the two most common factors that people referenced were the the calibre of the teams that they built and the relationships with the potential acquirers that they developed. I mean, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that even if you end up being acquired by somebody else, what those other relationships that you've built over five, six years give you is is some optionality in an end game, if you like, that can be really good or it could be a, a fallback in terms of a alongside a dual track for an IPO. So right. we talk about mapping out the buyer, buyer universe and then aligning yourself understanding their strategies and how you would align and then building those long-term partnerships. So what trips people up? You've been involved in dozens and dozens of, of M&A transactions, as have we. What kind of things do you see kind of catch people out? There's a lot of boring stuff involved in selling a company that can trip sellers up quite regularly. Some of that is you know, logistical in terms of actually managing the process. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But you know, the, the broad themes that end up appearing over a number of years are, are amazingly common and are, are things that are all capable of being spotted by the founders over a long period. So I would say generally not being organised, tax issues, that those are often around something to do with the shares, so not putting the share incentives in place in the right way or not dealing with share buybacks or exit employees in the right way. Tax is often considered to be a bigger issue, particularly for US corporates, than it is uh, elsewhere in the world. But it's always it always goes to value. The whole piece around being organised with the numbers as well, thinking about how a buyer is likely to view or want to view the numbers. And I think increasingly there is real merit in getting some proper vendor due diligence done to help sort of bridge the divide between a startup or scale-ups uh, treatment of their financials to how a buyer is going to look at it and the level of details they want to go into it. You'd be amazed by how many tech companies in Europe end up getting tripped up by some form of IP issue at the end of it. They haven't got their employees in the right places to sign up to all the right employment contracts is probably the most common one. So, you know, all these things are relatively basic, but they come up repeatedly. And part of that is, is kind of not being organized. And what a feature, I'd say, of um, US corporates is, is probably earlier in their life cycle, they will end up putting an experienced COO or general counsel that's got a, or a COO or maybe it's the CFO that's got a bit of a, a COO element to their job in place. And you don't tend to see those roles quite as frequently over here. I think it's, it's a bit of experience, really. Our CEO that's exited just will appreciate the administrative burden that comes along with going through a process and we'll want to make sure that they minimize that by having the right people in place early enough to manage it and and the logistical stuff that's just about being prepared sort of links to all these items and then getting your advisors and get working with advisors who have done sufficient number of these things so they can think through how buyers are going to look at it because all these things ultimately hold momentum and that's the key when you're selling a company you want to make sure that there's 
sufficient competitive tension and momentum in a process all the way through to the end because there's any number of reasons why a buyer could halt, stall, think about value and you just don't want to give them any opportunity to do that really. Interestingly, we were doing a a kickoff session with a, a new investment yesterday. So literally, we're just making the, the putting our first cash in, and we talked about almost every single one of those issues you you just brought up. And I think that's something we we probably wouldn't have done two or three years ago. So you know, we're learning as well, but we're trying to help our founders kind of really take those steps as early as possible. Talk a little bit about the differences you think in terms of the process and the burden of the IPO versus uh, the M and A. As I said, relatively, you see so much more private M&A now in European markets than, than IPOs. The, the number of founders who've got the experience that they can use as role models is, is quite different. And that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because founders want to learn and should learn from other exited founders. But the vast majority of them will have exited through private M&A. I think uh, LSE has done a great job in the UK with their elite program and other programs of trying to help founders in Europe that want to go down that route to begin to understand and get role models and you know organizations like ours we, we have a, an IPO retreat to give people that experience they are very different as I said earlier the regulatory burden on companies wanting to IPO at this point is very high and the ongoing burden as well I've had uh, several founders clients over the years that have gone onto the markets and then realize that once they get onto the market, the regulatory burden is just not suited to a founder CEO. Sometimes that means of changing roles. Sometimes it means that they engineer it by happenstance. It is engineered for them some form of take private, so they come off it as well. You do see for the absolute cream of the crop, European tech companies, sometimes they look at twin track processes where you're running a private M&A opportunity alongside a full listing, but those are rarer nowadays. So typically what you find is where you see these companies that really want to build a world-beating, very large-scale tech company, having the IPO market, or some cases a direct listing nowadays, and often that means they get drawn to the US, that does take a fairly considerable amount of time and effort. But you see those companies thinking about building and scaling in a very global way over a long time anyway, because to do that, you, you know, it's two or three years out where the planning starts, where... The sort of things we've talked about today do, you know, sort of from day one need some planning, but private M&A tends to have a smaller runway into it. The one thing I can't see changing anytime soon, though, is that uh, regulatory burden. Or you might, you might have seen some of the US uh, VCs have been beginning to murmur about the need for new stock markets that look more at long-term value, that would be more aligned to tech companies. And actually, I think there's a huge amount of sense in that. If we could in somehow lower the regulatory burden and um, you know, lift, lift off some of the cost again. There are so many reasons why having healthy capital markets is a good thing for the whole technology ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, long term, you've, we've got to believe that this is possible for us to build you know, an increasing number of technology businesses that, that do go public and, and do remain independent and endure so that the, the acquisition that kind of create that powerful ecosystem that we need to see. It's going to be in the minority, yeah. um, but we remain hopeful that will be the case. 
Yeah, me too. What about some kind of practical steps? I mean, we've talked about a lot of this, I think, already. But if there were kind of just two or three things you'd really like people to to take away from the, the conversation, what would what would those be? I would definitely say it's around people and, and having people around the boardroom, whether they actually sit on the board or broader advisory base that have got the exit experience, you know, having uh, a CEO that recognises their role and recognises the value of having people with that experience that they can help with is really important. And we are seeing a much larger number of people that have got exit experience now, whether they've just decided to go for a you know, large corporate, small, or, you know, I think the real value is if you've actually got a CFO or COO or the chairman who's who's done a number of scale-up exits, having those sorts of people around, I think, just helps a founder focus on what they need to do and make sure that their pedal stays on the metal, really, as they carry on building the business and don't get distracted by the actual M&A process. And, and, and taking advice from other founders and investors, because you know, it's not like there are no case studies. There are plenty now for routes to success and people who can be helpful along the way. Pedal to the metal, is that a throwback to the Dukes of Hazard? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> days, days of Thunder, maybe, Stephen. We're, days of Thunder, is that where it came from? Uh, maybe that's a little bit more contemporary. Well, Rich, look, it's been a, it's been a pleasure as always. And I always come away from conversations with, with you and, and many of the people who come, all the people that come onto the podcast, really kind of taking so much from that and learning so much. So thank you. You know, I think you can play a phenomenal role in helping kind of European founders and UK founders kind of fulfill their potential. How how can they get in contact with you? How can they learn more? Thanks, Stephen. And as I know, you know, I'm incredibly open with my network and you know, EY has got over a quarter of a billion in it. It's a huge organization. I think we work on more IPOs than any other organization globally. And We've got M&A lawyers on the ground in over 84 countries now. So I'm always keen to meet the best and the brightest investors and founders and so on. And I would be delighted to catch up. People can find me via LinkedIn. You can see me on Twitter at Apple Richards or you just get in contact via you, Stephen. They certainly can. And um, I'm sure anybody who wants to get in contact with us will, will find the way. Rich, it's been a complete pleasure as ever. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rich. And Stephen, just to say goodbye, because for those who are listening live, we won't be on until the fall, probably early September for another journey into the pain of scale. Yeah, we've already done quite a few of the... Actually, um, yeah. <laughs> we've already recorded quite a few. We're so... We, we're really getting ahead of ourselves here, but we decided to take not the summer off ourselves, but the summer <laughs> off from the, from the podcast program. So, we will be putting the next one out in early September. Exactly. And there'll be another 10 taking us through till, I guess, middle end of November, something like that. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Some fantastic uh, guests on there. People like Jonathan Gale, who is the CEO of New Voice Media. People like Mark Roberge, who was the CRO of HubSpot. People like Gibson Biddle, who is the CPO at Netflix. People like uh, Sarika Garg, who's the the VP of strategy at TradeShift. Um, you know, we'll have another 10 really interesting stories to share with the listeners. Wow. And in the meanwhile, guys, if you haven't listened to all the episodes we put out, that's the best opportunity. You have two and a half months to listen to all the back catalog of this podcast. And until then, have a very good summer. Thank you, Paul. 
Thank you.